Welcome to Monk's Tate. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Monk's Take. Today we have episode two of the three-part series with former men's basketball coach and athletics director Rick Simons. He will discuss, among many other things, the Chamber of Horrors and how that came to be and his experiences with his teams in the national tournament. So we, we covered some, some media guide stuff and now you know, something that you did, and again, probably not done by a lot of schools our size or in our uh, division, uh, the international trips, and maybe not so much international, but Hawaii trips in general. And we see those pictures scattered throughout the media guides. Talk about how that originated, like maybe the first ones that you took and those types of things. Well, one of the things I wanted to do, and of course, you could tie this in with your media guide, is if you if you plan far enough ahead, my hope was that, you know, if I'm recruiting Billy Jones down the road and Billy's between us and another school, Billy, you're going to go to Hawaii with us. And where were you going to go with fill in the blank? And of course, that was the whole point of it was to, to entice somebody to get them over the edge to want to come to, whether it's to go to Europe or or, or to go to, like you said, we went to Florida several times. We went to California. We went to Hawaii. You went to Texas and New Orleans and a lot of different places. We, we played 17 different division ones. And, and I can say, sadly, that we never defeated a division one. Almost did that. We beat many, many twos, but never, never defeated a division one school. So that was the, the hope. The plan was, and of course, it had residual value in that the kids already in the program loved it. It was great for the media guide because now you can put the, the beaches of Hawaii or wherever you, you were. One thing you learn as a coach that your players, are your, you know, they can be your best recruiters. And if they're having a great time, if they're enjoying what's going on, then they're going to you know, share that and spread the word. Uh, and so therefore, when, I, when I, a kid would come up to spend the night, and you put them with somebody, I mean, they're going to speak effusively of what a wonderful time it is here and look at all what we do. And, and so I, I really think that we, although we were very small in number at the school, uh, our experiences were not. Our experiences were very much like those of Division II programs. And, and quite frankly, and I know this is down the road, but my, my intent, our intent, was to become Division II. That was the, the plan. That was what I felt from the very beginning that, that St. Joseph's College should have done. And, and, and like I said, so I kind of wanted to lay the foundation, the groundwork for heading in that direction. And the trips is, is a significant part. And if you follow through with that uh, and look and see how many trips Mike McDevitt's been on or how many Will, Will Sanborn is, I, I mean, it's, it, you know, I, I'm... Is he, does he spend any time on campus? And God bless him, done a fabulous job. So, Well, and along with that is the, the fundraising aspect for those trips. Yes. yes, no question. And it takes, and of course, 
the one of the things that when I was playing, and, and they've changed this now, that's an NCAA rule. I was able to play a lot of Division Ones, but now they, they don't want that. Most conferences, you know. So, for example, when I played Florida State, we got ten thousand dollars from them for for that trip. And and you know as well as I that, and if you look at any major football uh, programs, the a lot of the, I mean, Alabama and those big Ohio State. They're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to schools to come in and get pummeled, you know, kind of build right. up, you know, get like a glorified exhibition games almost. Well, we did that and raised a lot of money. You know, one, one thing I would say, though, we played Florida State in Tallahassee and Florida State was what in the Elite Eight this year. Uh, have always been a tremendous athletic school. We were, we were down there with an outstanding team with Creech and Fiorillo and Chadbourne and Marquardt. And we were down four with three minutes to go and wound up, I think I, you could look it up, but lost by 14 or 16 or whatever. You know, we filed, they made the free throws the last couple of minutes. But I remember that coach taking, shaking my hand at, as we, you know, after the game. And he says two things. He says, one, he says, don't you ever call me for another game because we will <laughs> never play you again. And number two, number 11 would start for me tomorrow. And that was Jeff Creech. So, you know, the word, the word quickly spread how good he was. But uh, like I said, don't you ever call me for another game. And that <laughs> was you know, because we're supposed to win by 39. And, you know, it, it was far from that. Yeah, I was uh, looking at it right now, 88-72, January 7th, 1985. There you go. Well, that's, wow. Yeah, a 16-point loss to a, a school that's, I don't know, what, what was the enrollment here at that time, would you guess? I, I would say 650, maybe. Okay. Yeah, the easily. Uh, yeah. I don't know how well, many and like I said, the 16 points, it, I mean, we were disappointed. But here's the funny thing. I remember in the locker room after that game, and that is, we, we we were thrilled. In other words, you know, usually you take a loss and it's like, well, woe was me. And no, we we were celebrating because, we, like I said, it was really like a six, seven, eight point loss that they made the last twenty seconds. They made free throws, and so it, it was a fabulous experience against a terrific opponent. That's really cool. That's a great. That's a great one. That's a great story. So I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and go to the chamber. At what point did you decide, you know, instead of this being uh, maybe uh, not so much of a uh, selling point for a program, you're, you're just going to, you're going to make it, you're going to market it as something totally different. Yes. And the, uh, on the, on the outside of it, uh, uh, from Dante's Inferno, I had painted abandon hope all ye who enter here. The quote from, and the sisters didn't care for that. So I had to have that painted over. Um, and it was, uh, I, I thought that that was a good, you know, a good introduction of what, you know, but she felt, they felt that, that, that it was kind of uh, unfair. So I, I went along with that. And then we started to turn off the lights and introduce the players. And, and of course, you know, if you watch the Chicago Bulls, going back to that time that you just mentioned when Michael Jordan came on, it was, I mean, it was Broadway when he was introduced. So I said, okay, how can I do that for our guys? Well, I had them put up one spotlight because, of course, well, here was the problem. In the Chamber of Horrors, when you took off, shut off the lights, 
it took three and a half minutes for them to come back on. So I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have the light shut out because they wouldn't go along with that, the officials and everything. So I had one circular spotlight put right over the center circle and they could, we could do that one shut, you know, so, so that we would have that one. And so sure enough, we would uh, shut the lights off, put that one little spotlight on and play the national anthem. And by the time the national anthem was done, et cetera, then we, we were all set. And I had a lot of coaches would try different things. I know Dick Mead at one time at Farmington would take his team and go back into the locker room so they didn't have to watch us have our players introduced in the spotlight. Um, and it was, it, was, it was things like that that were able. One time I had a, um, we had a great competition that we, I went and got a turkey from uh, Allen's Farm in Cumberland. And if you could guess the way to the turkey, it was around Thanksgiving, you would win a, I don't know, I had Shaw's donate a 15 pound turkey or something. Well, that turkey weighed 87 pounds from Allen's and it, it got loose. So we got the <laughs> a live, pound a turkey, turkey running a live turkey. It was in a pen in, out in the lobby and it got loose on campus. And that was, oh, that was so chaotic trying to catch that ridiculous turkey. <laughs> um, and, and, and again, like I said, there was lots of those types of things. And the, and the, and the Chamber of Horrors, quite frankly, that was not, I wish I could say that was an original uh, thought, but the University of New Orleans way, way back called their facility the, universe, uh, the uh, Chamber of Horrors. And so like anything in sports, there's an old saying, good coaches borrow and great coaches steal. So you, you steal plays and you steal. And, and this was where I said, you know what? We're going to make it the Chamber of Horrors. And I think the, the incredible thing, because the sisters were so forgiving because uh, i mean we had one time a kid you know i can picture in fact great photo in the in one of the guides would climb up the the side of the building right up even with the windows and then dive into the hands of the baseball players so he's diving he was in a dress and he dove 20 some odd feet down into to be caught you know with outstretched arms much like like firemen catching a, a little kid in a fire or something Oh my God! And, and oh, and, and the kids that would—I remember they brought in a. Um, the baseball players were phenomenal in support, uh, but they brought in a shopping cart and was dressed up like Santa, and were handing out beers in the uh, in the chamber. And it's like they didn't—the sisters didn't know that they were handing out beers at first. You know what I mean? And then. But it was, it was so many stories like that. It was just unbelievable. So it was, we figured we had six, eight, 10 point advantage just at the start of a game. Well, the, the capacity of the place was just several hundred, right? A couple hundred people. Yeah. And, and we had with games with Hudson. I mean, there would, would be people lined up at 630 for a 730 game. I mean, it was, it was nuts. Well, you, you must have had people, you know, the fire code, you know, standing outside counting people going in. We had some issues with that. And um, <laughs> yes, we did. And when we had to deal with that and, and, you know, Dick, ba <laughs> Dick Bailey, who I have the incredible utmost respect for, who was my boss, uh, my immediate boss uh, as the dean of students, boy, he did anything and everything he could to help support 
not just athletics, but all students. And, and it was funny because he had a phone, a plastic phone, the type you'd buy for your three-year-old daughter. He had it fastened over there to, um, to a, like a girder in, and where he sat directly across from me. And whenever something was going on, he'd pick up this ridiculous little yellow plastic phone as if he was calling me. I'd look up, you know, across while I'm coaching and, and you know, like basically get somebody out of under control or, you know, and it was just, it was kind of like a running joke that he was always on the phone with me trying to make sure that things went well enough so that the fire marshal didn't throw, you know, shut the building down or whatever. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, the teams really must have hated to come in here. I've, I've heard some people, uh, our, our uh, photographer, David Bates, he, he played against you guys in our, in our building. And he said it was just a, it was a nightmare. It just the fans were unforgiving and, and uh, it, it was close proximity and, and like our, our players, like how that, that must have been a recruiting point for sure. Once you got that going uh, as the chamber, people wanted to play here and not against us here. You know, funny that you say that Matt Hancock from Hancock Lumber, who was an All-American at Colby and grew up in Casco, Matt all, told me this afterward. He said, we used to beg Dick Whitmore to go and play. We wanted to play in the Chamber of Horrors, but Dick Whitmore would have no part of it. He said, because as a kid, when I was 13, 14, 15, I'd come to a lot of games at the Chamber and... He said, what a, what a great environment. What a great, you know, but as a coach, an opposing coach, it's a, no, 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 I'm not playing there. So we, we never played Colby in the Chamber of Horrors. I just think it's, it's uh, one of the coolest stories of, of the history of our college is that building and how you turned it in from a negative into just this great uh, place of, of legend. And we got so much national media attention out of it, Sports Illustrated, uh, Nesson, and, and I know there are others. Talk about the the uh, the Sports Illustrated article, how that came to be. I know it was a tournament of of the uh, the St. Joseph's colleges from around the country. Right. Yeah, and I thought I I said you know this would be a great idea if I could somehow develop you know a, a tournament with only St. Joseph's colleges in attendance. So I. I reached, I, I did a little research. Um, back then, St. Joe's of Connecticut was not well known, uh, but there was a St. Joe's of Long Island and a St. Joe's of Brooklyn. And of course, the St. Joe's of uh, Rutland, Vermont, you know, invited them all, sent it out to Sports Illustrated to, to actually, I, what I did was I sent it out to um, Bob Ryan at the Boston Globe, who then contacted Sports Illustrated for us. And the gentleman by the name of Franz Lids, L-I-D-Z, who has written hundreds of articles, and he usually got assigned the, the, the unique type of story. Rather, he wasn't doing the LeBron James stories, but he was doing the smaller things and came on campus. And they got there a day ahead of time. And he said, we're going to what they call light up the gym. Well, it was it was amazing because... They put so many lights that every time a photographer would take a photo, it would flash. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lights would flash. Oh, wow. So it was it was unique to play in because the building isn't that big. So it's not like you're lighting up the Civic Center or something. They took 36 rolls of 36 films. 
So over a thousand shots in that game. <laughs> and I think there were what four that appeared, three or four that appeared in the magazine. And I, I later wrote them and said, could we have some of your, you know, the, the, the ones that you didn't use? And he said, well, most of it's garbage. Well, he wound up sending us, I don't know, 10 or 15 or 20, which were fabulous. The main photo was taken at midnight uh, and they took uh, Jeff Creech and, and a couple of other players up around the statue and they lit it uh, and they're standing out and it was cold. And, uh, but the kids didn't care because they were going to be in Sports Illustrated. So, it, it, and it was a great photo and, and, and it really worked, at, you know, and obviously then, the the exposure was phenomenal so and of course the, the the but the i guess paul harvey the rest of the story is that it we beat a team by i think it was 93 points in that game and the sad point is that if anybody saw the game they would recognize that because it it looks like we ran it up and i know that's a huge margin I wouldn't let the players, the, 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 Jeff Creech played 14 minutes in that game. So, and I think the most any player played was 16 or 18 minutes. So the starters didn't virtually get any time. We, we did, I wouldn't let them fast break after halftime. They had to walk the ball up. We had passed it around. We, it, in other words, they, they were just horrible. Uh, St. Joe's from Long Island. And he wound up not wanting to stay but they came in the same bus with St. Joe's of Brooklyn. So, it, you know, to save money. So it, it took a little bit of negativity, you know, away from the tournament. But like I said, it, it, we really, we really did not want to run the score up on them. And, and they wound up scoring, I forget, 30, 34 points or something like that. So, yeah. And, and if you look at our, at our, we led the country in scoring three or four or five, six times and averaged around a hundred points a game, just a little under. So it wasn't that, I mean, we scored a hundred on everybody, you know? So the fact we got a hundred to 30 something against them was, we, we were trying to be kind, but it didn't appear that way. Yeah. I, I see the, uh, I see the score. I think it's one forty to 35. And I remember in that article, I think there was even a quote from that coach saying that, yeah, we won't be back. No, <laughs> no. So how, how did it come about? Like the national attention, uh, you mentioned that you contacted Bob Ryan and, and, you know, I could try to do that today. I'm sure Bob Ryan wouldn't answer my emails or phone calls. Like how, how did you harvest those relationships? Well, I think, I mean, again, it was not nearly as social media driven as it is today. I think it was easier to, to be able to reach out. And obviously, we'd had some degree of success. And, and I think people like the David and Goliath story that, and the little guy. Um, so I, I, I guess that was the attraction. And of course, the, the fact that I forget the headline, but St. Joe's is going to win or whatever. We could predict the outcome of this tournament. But I, I, I just, I know that a lot of what we've done, I, we would use it going forward. And of course you build. So for example, I know Rico Petroselli came 
and did footage. And it, and we had several of those types of things. And like you mentioned, Nesson. And I, I, when we lost, I guess we'd won 49 in a row at home and finally lost. But, but for a while there, we were getting tremendous coverage so that almost all of our home games were being filmed, not just not just covered in terms of the next day in the paper or whatever. But um, they would, you know, if they didn't know what, if they had nothing going and didn't know what to cover, they'd send a cameraman out to the chamber. It always made for good footage. That's awesome. And I know, yeah, the, the, the winning streak obviously garnered a lot of attention because, you know, that, that's, that's unheard of. Although McDevitt did, uh, did break that record for, uh, <clears throat> at least for a basketball program, they won 51 in a row with his uh, recent stretch with all those good teams, Kelsey McNamara and, and all that. But I don't want to, I don't want to open a wound if that's the case. So the, the 49 game win streak, Rico Petroselli, uh, I know the final game in the chamber, was that, was that televised live? No, I don't remember that being live. I, I, I know that, I mean, there was a lot of coverage, uh, you know, but not, no. And then of course we had another game where, where everybody came back, you know, back to the chamber. Uh, you know, that was a, that was a good, good day where everybody could kind of reminisce, but I don't know. I don't remember Corey that there was ever a game, actually the entire game live covered. No. Okay. I mean, I'm just rom- romanticizing what I heard at one point. <laughs> well, run with it, buddy. I, you know what? That That's uh that's don't let, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Mark Twain. <laughs> <laughs> So closing the chamber and moving into the, the, you know, newly built Elfon center, that had to be really bittersweet, right? I mean, all the success you had, but your program was so much bigger than the building. And it, I'm sure it became time where, you know, looking at other schools, facilities and how does the landscape of athletics change college athletics? I mean, my God, you're looking at some of the facilities uh, what what Colby has done with with uh, you know the the Whitmore Center and and all those things up there. I know that hadn't started yet, but I'm sure during the late '90s, early 2000s, you were starting to see that facilities were a big recruiting point. But going back to my long and short of the question, what was it like for you to move over to the Alphonse Center? Well, you're absolutely right in that it was bittersweet because you you recognize what a tremendous advantage as a coach you have but you, I felt that we, it would really help in recruiting because now you can point with pride towards something we could attract more people uh, there, there was a lot of benefits to be gleaned from from a new facility the, the, the disappointment more than anything I think was that they did away with the chamber in the sense that we were told it was going to be kept for intramurals uh, and I think that's exactly what should have been the case. I think that uh, the, the kids would have benefited from that. But I, I think that, I mean, what it's a, obviously it's a beautiful building. It, it, you know, it, it, it's it not, not to be compared. I, I've not, I have not been to Colby, but I've heard that that's in a, you know, in a, a world of its own. But I, I think we could put the Alphonse Center up against an awful lot of small college facilities and, and, and feel proud. Oh, definitely. And, and, you know, you're right about how that would have been a great facility for intramurals. And, and I'm sure it was, it was a different, and I don't know the chronology of how that went down, but 
you know, when you left that building, your, your perception was you weren't leaving it for the last time. It was going to remain a gym. And then I don't know how long thereafter it became, uh, you know, stalls for facilities and equipment, but that's probably some sore memories there. Yeah. A little, like I said, disappointment. And then later on, we, we, there would have been a lot of opportunities for practices there so yeah. that we could have practiced at the same time uh, with the girls or, or, you know what I mean? Meaning, you know, because we had to, because it's being used for other things, we had to kind of tiptoe at times uh, around the use of, of the building. But more importantly, I think for the students themselves, that they, what a great place to be able to go in and play, shoot hoops or, or play in the murals. Yeah, absolutely. And you know full well how busy we get here around, you know, the end of January when spring teams start practicing indoors and right. meeting with the winter teams for gym time. It's really, really busy. But do you have any memories of, you know, just kind of closure of that building and maybe the last time you turn the lights off in your office or, or, or things like that? You know, it, it was interesting because you, you, you bring up the office. See, that that too was uh, was kind of a, a metamorphosis in that uh, Dick Bailey, ultimately we decided to build onto the back of that building because we hadn't had that. And so by putting my office at one end overlooking the, well, at that time it was just trees and, and Dick on the other end in the parking lot. And then, you know, we the, the put a, a locker room and a training room and I mean, we had something at least so that you weren't in the men's room. And, and I, I, again, I go back to Dick, uh, Dick Bailey just did so much for that campus and that college. Uh, and I remember when we were building the softball baseball complex and because that was an extensive uh, uh, amount of time and, and expense. And, and so that whole, that, that, you know, really changed the, the whole look of the campus as well. And I always remember Dick, because he'd allocated so much money and he went through it with Phil. Uh, it was just, you know, it was nothing but trees and, and gullies and valleys and streams running through it. And, and um, I, I remember him saying, just keep filling, just keep filling. Because in other words, we're going to get that dog on baseball field and softball field. And then we'll figure out how to pay for it. Because if we had to stop when we'd run out of money, we never would have had it. But you know, as today, I mean, it's a, what a, what a point of pride for baseball and softball. Oh, absolutely. And, and you, you may know that, you know, we had Dick Bailey on as a, uh, a podcast guest a while back and he did talk about that. And he mentioned how, how he, you would, you would joke with him about how he'd be out there and he'd be bushwhacking during his lunch break or, or things like that. I mean, very literally, you know, built, some of the facilities here with his own hands and, and just making it a better place for athletes and, and, and students in general, moving into the Alphonse center. Well, actually I want to, I want to jump back. So you said the office, when did that addition happen on, on the monster building? You know, I don't remember the year, um, but it was, we were only in the offices. Oh, a handful, four, five, six years. I mean, it, it wasn't, in the beginning at all. But when we did that, uh, it, it enabled the kids to have a place because prior to that, I had offices in two different locations at St. Joe's Hall. And, you know, you, one of which was just really a, like a dorm room over near the chalet, what was then the chalet. So we, we, there really was no place for students to, to come and get help or, 
or to mill around or kids, you know, want if they needed something that you, we, you know, they just, it was really difficult to try to steer them or guide them. Uh, so by just putting some offices and all of those different things, it, it, again, it gave us a little bit of an athletic identity. And the weight room, while it was, you know, in today's standards, it was kind of a laughing stock. But but back then it was it was better than what we had, so it was terrific. Same thing with the with the training room. You know, back in the early days, if you were going to put tape on someone, I mean, we do it in the bleachers, you know, and before the game or something. You there was no place to go to to have that, and you take so much for granted now. But hey, we, you you know you do with what you have, and and that's okay. And the kids, you know, it, it's you look back. One of one of John Tolan's great jokes always was about eating the sandwiches that and, and, and the van rides and and the vans would break down. And but it's okay because we got cream cheese sandwiches and everything was lesser. But if that's all you knew, it was it was fine. You know that, that you just. You know, you, you just sucked it up. And and, and and plus the mentality then was we, we can deal with anything. We, and I think that was important in the whole development that, we, we, you know, we're not spoiled. We're not, you know, special. We, no, we're going to roll our sleeves up and, and this is what we have. And now let's make the most of it. And certainly, you know, the talent you had in winning will we'll cover up a lot of those things that people don't even think about. Absolutely. So I've seen pictures of, of what was, was your office, some of the old archives. And what, would, what did you have for an office before that, uh, you know, that addition to the building? Well, like I said, we had two different offices. In St. Joe's Hall, the, the cornermost office, actually that was a step up across from where I think is, I, it was then the nurse's office. I, again, you, you, it may all be changed now, but it, the, and I can remember the, the, um, the first one I had was uh, like on the side near the chalet, a couple of doors down. And of course you, you get to listen to the, all of the noise of the chalet and the music and, the, and all. And it, it was just, it, it was very, very tiny. Um, but, but it was okay, you know? And like I said, then when I moved to over on the other, the front of St. Joe's, uh, in the corner office, at least you had enough room there for a sofa so that you could have some conversations, you know, prior to that, it was a chair. Um, and, and that was much more difficult to invite kids in. And again, when you're recruiting here, have a pull up a chair, you know what I mean? It, it, it's not very uh, glamorous, but it's, you, you, we just, we lived with it. That's okay. Now, I, I want to backtrack again. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but we, we have to talk about the national tournament win over Biola. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the lead up to that game? And I mean, this, this is the year, one or two years after Jeff Creech was here. So clearly you had built off of, you know, like you said, great players. Uh, you know, you can yield more great players. So these are the years where you had some pretty solid rosters all around. I don't know, you know, Charlie Warren and, and, and those guys. So talk about that team and, and lead up to that game and, you know, the game in general. Well, prior to that, two years prior, we played in the, in the back then you played in uh, the uh, expo for the right to go to Kansas City. 
and we played and just a, a brutally difficult loss. In fact, we went into overtime. Mark Jones took a layup. We ran in a terrific out-of-bounds play. He went in all by himself for the right to win. And to this day, we don't understand what happened because he must have imparted some spin with his wrist because the ball was laid off the backboard. He was by himself and it hit, you know, came back onto the rim and then spun out. And uh, it's funny because the referee underneath, Jack Coyne, who sadly is not with us any longer, he said that he'd already taken the whistle off his neck and was running to the, uh, the, the locker room because that was the end of the game. It, but it didn't go in and we ultimately got beaten in overtime. But, and, and, you know, we went down in the locker room after that. I can, I can picture us because we were all crying. Every single one of us, it was, you know, it was just devastating. And the, and the, the next year, we went in the same exact situation and, and again, lost a one-point game. And, you know, it, it's funny. The first year when we lost, it, it, you know, it, the next day the kids were in the gym, you know, ready to play. We, we will get back. It will, you know. Well, the second year when we lost at, at the very end, Nobody wanted to. And I remember standing in the shower with water coming down on me and the players in their uniforms in soaked. Uh, and it was like it was it was like a funeral mm -hmm. and nobody wanted to go back in the gym because it had been two years in a row. We would felt that we'd earned it. And one of the things, you know, I, I'm going to say this, that uh, and I won't name the official, um, but I made a mistake. and. Uh, and that is, we, we had a, like a six point lead or something with two and a half minutes to go and, and point guard filed out. And then with a minute and a half to go, uh, next point guard filed out. And I remember saying to the official, I say, we're going to Kansas city. Don't, 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 you know, take it away from us. And I guess to him, it was like, you know, you're not, don't, don't even tell me what you're going to do. And so we had a couple of calls go against us and it, it was, it was brutal. And I felt so bad for those kids to this day. I feel bad for those kids because they didn't get the chance, you know, Creech and Fiorillo and them to go to Kansas city and they deserved. It. And the next year, like you mentioned, we, we were down. We, we, we had no business winning that game because we were down uh, against Castleton with five or six minutes excuse me, with five or six points with a couple of minutes to go and actually with about a minute 10 to go, something like that. And they threw it away and we made free throws and we threw and we wound up Charlie Warren made a big shot and for the right to go to the Nationals. And, and that, like I said, I think we were more stunned than we were celebratory. I mean, it was like, how in the heck, how could we win this game? We had no business winning this game. And of course, after Creech and Fiorillo, you know, 4,000 points between them had graduated. But David, Charlie Warren was a big time player. And David Chadbourne was, again, the rock of Gibraltar. It was, it was unbelievable. And then, and then to go to out and play in Kansas City, uh, we, you know, they always, it's funny because they always tell you, we don't seed you one to 32. Well, no, but they see the top two or three or four or whatever is top five. So if you play in the number two, you know, you're 31, 
you know, and so it's not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. But there's a game in which we led throughout that game. And, and as good as they were, as big as they were. And, and, you know, I remember that year, Viola beat New Hampshire College. And New Hampshire College won the Division II New England Championship. Now, the, Viola beat them by 16. And so, in other words, th this was a really tough team. But we led throughout the entire game. And really, David Chadbourne con controlled that entire ball game because, you know, there's an old saying, if you don't have a power forward, you don't have a power forward. But if you don't have a point guard, you don't have anything. Hmm. And we had the best point guard. So he's like the quarterback. And, and it was in total control. And, and the, one of the saddest things that has occurred to St. Joe's is the next game we played Auburn Montgomery. And I am telling you, we would have beaten them had Charlie Warren not broken his his uh, hand during that game. So that, you know, if, other than that, we, we were we were dominating them. We were, you know, he and Tom Ullman, they were controlling the boards and we'd have won that game and, and advanced. But when Charlie got injured, we were we just weren't able to keep going. So that, that would have put you winning that game would have put you in the Elite Eight. Yes. Wow. Yep. And that was a, a, like heady. Uh, and of course, I remember that when we beat Biola, it was the heading, the headline story in USA Today. So oh. that that was pretty cool. And one thing that was really kind of neat that um, the sisters, we all, everybody went, you know, everybody went out to the, because the girls were out there at the same time. And that was phenomenal and i remember larry woodward was the writer for the portland press herald and we we all went to dinner and he was sitting beside me and and we were all had a little pool as to what the dinner was going to cost because it and it came to like thirteen hundred dollars or whatever it was uh, at a big steakhouse out in kansas city and and uh dick bailey said no no we know we'll be we'll be going to be having that steak dinner because right? we tried so hard to get there and it was it was well worth it and there was a a fa fabulous celebration after we won that game. Outstanding. So throughout, throughout your time, I know you, you played some, a lot of D1s and a lot of D2s, and you squared off against some, uh, some really good players who went on to, you know, play in the NBA or have, have good careers. You talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there was, we, we did. In fact, if, had we beaten Auburn Montgomery, uh, I guess it worked out that we were going to get uh, Scotty Pippen in the next round, uh, but we never did get a chance for that game because, like I said, we we got beaten. But that would have been the next one where, where Southern Oklahoma or whatever school he was down there. Um, I mean, there, there were so many good players along the way, and and you know, you look at some of those teams. Um, a lot of exceptional players at Florida State, and and we played. We played at Tulane University. They were terrific on that trip. And, and you know, it's, it, I think of different, we, we were playing Barry University and they had an outstanding player. We, that's a division two down in Miami. And I remember we were sh had going to the shoot around that morning and uh, they, they were just getting done their shoot around. And the coach said, I said, and I don't remember his name, but I said, boy, he's a heck of a player. He says, yeah, but don't worry about him because he was late to the shoot around. So he won't even play against you guys tonight. Well, he played 39 of the 40 minutes and had 42 points. 
So I, 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 and I, I, you know what, I shouldn't have said this, I, but I said it after the game when I shook his hand, I said, good game coach. I said, you taught that young man a lesson because you held him out a minute. So, and they were down six or eight after a minute. And he says, I'm not losing to this, you know, bunch of chumps from Maine. So the kid, uh, anyway, and he went on. There's just so many good players. I was trying to think who arguably was the best player we ever played against. And that's, boy, that's tough to, I know I put it in the media guide one time. Um, and, and when I, you know, it's funny because, I saw a player a few years ago when my son was playing at Anna Maria uh, and they had a player from Anna Maria that used to get 40 against us every time. And he was, uh, he was phenomenal. And I saw him at that game four or five years ago and he always brought it up to me, but um, (laughs) you know, one time, a great story, we were playing in Hawaii and we played against BYU Hawaii on a, let's say a Friday and the refereeing was awful. And and to the point where they were taunting me, where, for example, the kid would go in and take four steps and the referee would look at me and say, hey, uh, coach, I bet you wanted to travel on that one, right? And it's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. But you expected that a little bit when you went, especially distance on the road. Well, the irony was the next day we're getting ready to play Hawaii Pacific. And in in a a tournament game that was going to be televised on their what they call inter-island television. So all over the islands. And uh, the same official shows up. So I went up to the uh, coach and the athletic director said, I- I'm not going to play if he's officiating because he, you know. So they said, you're not going to play. Well, we're, wait a minute, we're going to be on television. I said, no, but I'm not going to play. I mean, he, he absolutely shafted us last night and I'm not going to put up with that again. It's not fair to my kids. So they, they, they said, well, this is what we'll do. They said, how about if we keep one of the, we're playing in the second game of this tournament. We'll keep one of the officials from the first game and we'll let him sit right behind you on the bench. And if you don't like the way that this official is officiating, let us know. We'll take him right off the court, right in the middle of the game. And we'll put this other official back in. Well, I said, yeah, that's fair. And so now you can imagine so the official now has been put on warning that he's going to be dragged off the court on oh, national television. I want to tell you, Corey, we got every call there was because he didn't want to be, you know, be made to look bad. We still lost. They had a seven, one Australian that, you know, that was phenomenal and we still lost by 14 or 15 or whatever. Uh, and like I said, and every call he made was in our favor because he didn't want to look bad. So, uh, you know, fascinating story of officiating. Well, yeah, that's something that's something you never hear of. I bet you've never seen or, or heard of something like that since. <laughs> no way. So Reggie Lewis is on that list, right? Reggie Lewis. And you know something? We would have beaten Northeastern that day if David Chadbourne had played. David had a back operation. And uh, he was out. In fact, he was supposed to be out for six months and David was out for about four weeks. And I had surgeons from around the country calling me saying, what have you done? How are you able to get him back after this back fusion operation or whatever? Um, And, but he did not play that game and we lost and we gave up in that, in that game. I remember that we gave up 12 
turnovers that led to dunks. Ooh. Now, we would never would have done that if David Chadbourne had the control of the ball. And it wasn't that we were better than Northeastern. It was that night they really looked over us. You know, most upsets that occur in sports are not when the lesser team plays superbly. It's when the better team plays poorly, plays down to the competition. And, and Reggie had a good game that day. But like I said, we, we would have won that ball game, I'm convinced, that night. Uh, and then if they'd have played him, if we'd have played them a second time, they'd have beat us probably by 30. Right. No, that, that's, that's pretty cool. Those are games like you, like you mentioned, playing the division ones and division twos, you don't see that very much anymore. Uh, and being able to say you played against a Reggie Lewis or things like that. It was a, it's another way to set yourself apart. So kind of in the same realm, you, you took a one year sabbatical during your time here to coach at Davidson. Now, how did that come to be, and, and what was that experience like? Bob McKillop was the coach of Long Island Lutheran High School, uh, one of the outstanding high school programs in the country. And I recruited several players from Long Island Lutheran that came and played for me at St. Joe's. And they all had good experiences, and they obviously must have gone back and told Coach McKillop, that, you know, that this little St. Joe's in Maine has got something going on. So when McKillop became the head coach at Davidson, he con- he had contacted me and wanted to know if I was interested in joining him. Well, at that point, I, I hadn't been uh, interested. Then he was in the last year of his contract and he said, Rick, I need you to come down. I, I really, it's important. So I went to, the, to uh, you know, the administration and asked Dr. Hart if I could, um, could take a year sabbatical. He said, absolutely, yes. Uh, and I, I went down. It was, you know, it was a terrific experience. The dilemma had, was for me that I'd been divorced and I saw my two daughters at that point two or three times the entire year. Because I just, you're on the road at the division one level. It's the time that you put in is so different. But, um, but what we did is we advanced all the way to the finals of the Southern conference. And he got a five-year renewal of his contract and is still there today uh, and doing a fabulous job and considered one of the leading coaches in the country. And I know he is very magnanimously Uh, on many occasions, given me a lot of credit. Uh, I was at the end of the year, I was given uh, an opportunity. What, what, you know, back, back then, I I think I was, I think I made $30,000 that year, plus a car and a house and a gas card and food. And so in other words, it was, it was a good contract. Hmm. Well, uh, I remember they came to me and said, we'd really want you to, to come on, you know, stay on board. And I had a booster come to me and say, I'll give you $10,000 on top of whatever the college will give you if you stay. And I, I just, I miss, I felt like professionally, it was the right thing to do. I should have stayed because I would have become, I think, a division one head coach. And the reason I say that is because I was the associate head coach, meaning that the top assistant and the next two people in line both went on to become division one head coaches. So I think that would have occurred, but I, I wouldn't have seen my daughters. And I, and I, you know, personally, I made the right decision. Professionally, I probably didn't. So, but I don't regret it. And, uh, 
it was like I said, a terrific opportunity, and I'm I'm very glad I did it. And one of the things that that really made it neat was because everything was different. Meaning, I was in the Northeast, I went south. You know, Division three to Division one. Every every so everywhere we traveled, uh, everything we did was just new to me. I hadn't I hadn't spent a lot of time, you know, and uh, a lot of great experiences. And of course, John Simon did a great job, uh, you know, in your stead while you were away. In the, in the- well, and the irony, Corey, was that the very first game was against St. Joe's because I'd already set up that I'd already set up that schedule that we were going to play Davidson. And wow. so when I went to Davidson, here comes John Simon and the Monks. Uh, and they played really well. Uh, you know, we out the Davidson ultimately won, but it was it was really a, a very good game. And John did a terrific job. Uh, and those kids and, 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 you know, they they were it was a very good team. And, and kind of again, ironically, uh, John Wassenberg was a freshman that year. And of course, now he's my son in law. But, you know, big time player coming to the monks and, and I left him. So yeah, I've heard that once or twice. <laughs> So what, what are some things that you brought back with you that maybe uh, changed your philosophy a little bit or some things you wanted to offer that you hadn't seen before brought back from Davidson? I think one of the biggest things, I was never a huge film guy in terms of film preparation because I, you know, I, I guess I kind of went to the Bobby Knight school of, of coaching in that, if it, you know, or John Wooden. I, I always remember Gail Goodrich saying one time that John Wooden never would talk about the opponent, would never show film. So as a result, we, we would go into a game at UCLA, he said, and, and we had guys that would get 40 or 50. We never even knew that they were existed. Well, I, I guess I always felt the same way in that, no, it's about what we do and, and we're going to do it better and we're going to be prepared and we're going to run our stuff. And so, but when I went to Davidson, you know, as an assistant, we did a tremendous amount of film work, as I'm sure every Division One program does. Uh, in fact, now Division Twos and Threes do a tremendous amount. So I came back having watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of game film from other teams, and I had a therefore a portfolio of new plays that you know because if you're watching teams, wow, that worked, and you run it back, run it back. So again, just just pages and pages of new plays, many of which we ran for years at St. Joe's after I returned. Thank you for listening to part two of the three-part series with Rick Simons. Tune in next time to our third and final installment in which Coach Simons will discuss his life after St. Joseph's College and his experience with the Red Claws as a writer and overall his legacy left with the Monks. That episode will be released in the coming days, so be sure to watch for that. Thanks again for listening.